Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. First, we have Dr. Chris Wurst. Chris is a research fellow at the Griffith Asia Institute. He got his PhD from Waseda University in Tokyo. He has worked for the federal government of Switzerland. He has published widely at major international journals, such as the International Relations of the Asia Pacific and the Asia Pacific, uh, the Pacific Review and Geopolitics. He is currently working on uh, on a book with a working title on maritime nationalism. And the second speaker today is P- Dr. Peter Layton. Peter is a visiting fellow at the Griffiths Asia Institute. He has an extensive Australian military and defense experience over more than 40 years, including being air attache in the UK. He has a doctorate from the University of New South Wales on grand strategy, exactly today's perspective. And he, has, uh, he was awarded a fellowship to the EU's European University Institute in Florence. For his work at the Pentagon, he was awarded the US Secretary of Defense's Exceptional Public Service Medal. He has had articles, papers, and posts published by the Austrian Strategic Policy Institute, RUSI or RUSI, in UK. Defense studies, uh, diplomat, security challenges, Armed Forces Journal, Lowe Institute, the Australian Defense Force Journal, etc. He has also won Rusi's Trench Gascoy Prize for original writing on contemporary issues of defense and international security. So I won't say too much because I got, we got plenty of talks later on, so we'll start with Chris. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Stephen, for the introduction. Thanks to uh, everybody to come and um, yeah, take your time to listen to what we have to say and also to comment on, hopefully on, 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 what we, on the ideas that we put forward. Um, I was told to talk for about 20 to 25 minutes, though I'm the one with the slides and probably could take longer. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm trying to do is two things. First of all, uh, I'm just going to give a, a more of a general introduction for those of you who might not have followed the details or might not really um, have... Uh, had interest or time to look at the, the bigger picture. So that's the first, thi- first thing, and that's also why I come up with a number of slides. And then in the second part, I'm basically going to put forward my idea about how we should understand recent events. Uh, it's a very, fairly simple idea, um, but I think it cannot be emphasized enough that um, we have to see things in context and that this. Uh, kind of deeper understanding and more long-term view would, would be helpful for everybody to uh, actually further more effective policies. So let me just start with uh, the, the images. I think that's we all what we, we've seen. There's uh, these large-scale land reclamation activities um, by China uh, that have been starting from early 2014 uh, in several of the reefs. Here on the left you could see how that has been progressing, in this case since 2012. That's how it looked, uh, the same place how it looked before, in 2006, and that's how it's supposed to look when it's finished. So there's a considerable change, there's, a, there's an airstrip, there's uh, properly kind of, uh, not fortified, but uh, kind of established infrastructure that can also withhold weather conditions and host harbor ships, plus uh, several airplanes. 
that's the uh, South Johnson Reef case. Um, understandably, these developments have uh, caused some uproar, not just in the coastal states, but on a global level. We've had uh, famously um, with U.S. Vice President uh, Biden commenting on this, Secretary of Defense, uh, the Australian government has been quite clear in condemning this acti these activities, and even the European Union, otherwise kind of indifferent to what's happening in East Asia, has has made its strong stance. Not to speak, of course, uh, of the Japanese government, and Philippine and Vietnamese government. So what do we really make out of these development in these large-scale reclamation uh, activities of the last one or two years? What does that really mean? And I guess the general tone or understanding is that, and it really fits into the discourse that has been going on for 10, 20 years already, that this is just another example of a rising power uh, causing trouble and instability. And even so, even more so, because this rising power is a communist country, it's not a democracy, so unlike India, it really catches our attention and the gaze has really been on China and kind of observing just another facet of this, of this rise and assertiveness in, in America sphere. My take on this is slightly different. I think if we look a bit on the, on the long term and see what else is happening elsewhere, what other actors do, especially if we aspire to have an understanding that goes a bit deeper than just looking at, uh, at the conflict from one side, I think we, I would argue that this is a result of basically two major factors or trends. One is a certain, is a gold rush mentality that we've seen before in the South China Sea. So there's this um, hope to, for gov of governments to really find something they, they look for yeah, in order to continue uh, to make their societies prosperous. They look for natural resources or some sort of uh, natural resources and means to improve the prosperity of their societies. And it's in particular the Chinese government, but not only the Chinese government. In addition to this, there's this one, in some ways you could say it's, it's a similar, it goes into, it's connected, but we could say it's a, it's a result of geopolitics understood in military terms. A certain rivalry, um, to put simple, between China and the US. But more broadly, it's a geopolitics understood as attempts of policymakers, academics like us, to make sense of the world and how the world changes. And as I'm going to argue, geopolitical thinking seems really uh, attractive uh, for that purpose because if we look at the world, more precisely on maps of the world, uh, cartographic representations of the map, uh, things to be, seem to be so clear. Right? There's countries, there's borders, there's the seascape and the landscape. There's narrow straits, there's small countries and big countries, and there's heartlands and rimlands. And in that way, uh, maps and geography seems to suggest some unchanging laws that really help us to orient ourselves and make sense of contemporary developments and kind of project those into the future. Uh, that's my basic take. Um, but before I elaborate on how I come to this uh, argument, let me briefly go back and explain, still very generally, the situation that we 
are facing in the South China Sea and how, how, they, how we came this far. And I've mentioned that before, but it's, it's quite hard actually, even if you use Google, to find a map that is accurate or a graph that's accurate. Because, first of all, we need to see that this kind of nine dotted line in the South China Sea is not necessarily a territorial claim, it's kind of an ambiguous thing. It was proposed by a Taiwanese officer or nationalist officer of the Kuomintang in, in the 30s. It has made its way onto Chinese maps and mainland maps and used by, by Beijing. But still, Beijing is not clear in saying that this, this line of the dots are actually what they claim. There's more of an understanding that they claim all the islands that are within this line, but not necessarily the waters themselves. And I think, though, over the course of the last years, as a result of geopolitical wrangling, the, the dotted line should probably become named as, as a proper line. I mean, that's a, a prospect we are facing. So anyway, that's China and Taiwan having that claim, even though Taiwan is not openly using it anymore that much. But they haven't retracted either. Then second, as you can see, the Vietnamese claim is actually quite big too, except for the northern part. Battery is going out. It almost encompasses this, the entire South China Sea as well. And then the third thing that maps usually forget is the part of Indonesia on the southern tip. There's still a, um, even though the Natuna Islands are not, uh, I think, not disputed by China, but there's still an exclusive economic zone that extends from these islands, and that's where Indonesia and China also um, kind of get into friction now and then, uh, at least on a small scale. So, and I mean, the, the scramble for, for, for islands and features on reefs in, in this area has been going on for some time. I would argue that what we're seeing now with this phase of large-scale land reclamation is about probably the fourth phase of, of this kind of gold rush uh, that we have or the scramble for islands. It started in the 50s when there was basically uh, not much of a presence there. There's a, there's a colonial background, imperial background, but in the 50s China started to occupy some features. Then Taiwan caught up. Uh, Taiwan at, them, at that time was much stronger, especially in terms of uh, naval assets. Then in the 70s, Vietnam, South Vietnam at that time, uh, made a big claim and occupied 11 features at least. Uh, Malaysia came in, Philippines came in, and that's been going on for some time. Since the 90s then, uh, energy became a more important aspect to it, and this, since then the scramble basically has been uh, continuing this back and forth, and it's quite hard actually to, to keep the overview on what's happening. But just to make it a bit more clear what's happening now in this phase, the fourth phase, with, uh, as you can see, and let's probably should go back to. We are talking now about this, this square here, the Spratly Island. You will see uh, Chinese land reclamation activities here. Sorry about my laser pointers. And as you can see, there's all the other claimants have some sort of presence as well. Taiwan has finished an improvement of its runway in the Ituataba Island uh, in 2008. We had um, Vietnam has a, as, a, as an airfield in Spratly Island airfield, and it had also reclaimed land prior to 2014 in two reefs at least. The Philippines has uh, an airstrip on this Tito Island in the north, 
and it had also been resettling people to what is the Kayan uh, province or uh, prefecture. Commun- I'm not sure what the, the term is of this political unit at the local level. At the moment, there's a, there's a bit over 200 people living there. And interestingly, there was a big hype of a plus 40% increase in the population of these islands in 1995. That's when we had one of the confrontations uh, between the Philippines and, and the People's Republic of China. Then the population shrank, and in 2010 there was another hike. So for some reason, more people get, got relocated from the Philippines on these disputed, in, into these disputed areas. And then last but not least, uh, Malaysia also, uh, in the southeast, Solo Reef has an airfield, an island, a decent airstrip. So without actually endorsing uh, China's recent land reclamation activities, we can still see that, and that's what they've been arguing, we are just catching up. All the others have an airstrip, and we want one too. Uh, after all, and that's been the tone, um, we are a big country, and a big country should, have, <laughs> should reclaim big areas. So this is for that background. And well, actually, you could go beyond the South China Sea and even mention uh, Okino Torishima and Minami Torishima, two Jap- Japanese archi kind of features in the Western Pacific, where they have also been or are building now uh, airstrips and reinforcing uh, infrastructure since, since the last year on, on a similar scale. These are not disputed directly uh, in terms of territory by others, but uh, they're doing that. So this is kind of a trend that's going on in general. And why um, is it not necessarily for, or maybe it is for natural resources because countries believe it is, but I would argue it's not necessarily objectively uh, justifiable. Because if we look at the, the reserves that are supposed to be there, the natural and gas, or gas and oil reserves are not actually in the Parasol and the Spratly Islands themselves. They are the rim of the South China Sea that is mostly uh, uncontested. You can also see that a bit more closely on this map, if it were a bit bigger, that the, the facilities or the, the oil rigs, the gas rigs, are, are actually not in the spreadlist. There might be some deposits, but uh, it's very contested how big they are. One indication of this gold rush mentality, though, is that the Chinese estimates of what could possibly be found are about 100 times, almost close to 100 times bigger as uh, other entities' estimates, um, which for me is a kind of an indication. Possibly it's a political maneuver by the state-owned uh, oil, um, energy uh, enterprises, but I think it's more this thing as well that you know the resources for China's future prosperity and with that, the solution to all the Chinese social economic problems could among others, be found in the South China Sea. Even though probably, this is probably not the case. <clears throat> then the other main argument is about sea lanes. Uh, I think that's very prominent in Australia, in the US, in Japan especially. That you know, it's important that the sea lanes remain open in the South China Sea. That the world depends on it, especially Japan depends on it, Australia depends on it, and that the Chinese land reclamation is basically designed to somehow control these sea lanes. And that's indeed an argument that's been, I mean, more prominent in China too, that's been this, almost become a truism that China's future depends on these sea lanes and that they could be blocked by, by the US and, and its allies. 
one side. And of course, mirroring that on the Japanese side, there's this argument, oh, China could block these sea lanes and strangle our economy and, and us. Interestingly, the only study that really looked at that is from 1996, based on data from 1993. And that was before China become an, became a net importer of oil. And it was about the time when the Chinese rise started to uh, take off. You know, In 1992, Deng Xiaoping went on his southern tour and emphasized we continue to reform, at least economically, our country after this, uh, the Tiananmen hit us and, and the hardliners getting more safe, of the same. So why don't we have another study if this is so important? And why is this ceiling issue so important for outside powers? You know, Australia is far less dependent on, on this ceiling, except, except for exports to China. So if China is the threat, then you know, if you have war with China, then you have no export anyway, then you don't need to worry about that. And, um, even in case the whole South China Sea would be blocked, according to this one study from 96, for Japan that wouldn't matter too much. There's other factors like global commodity prices, the insurance market that really determine how much the cost of shipping would, would rise or not rise. In that study, one scenario, um, I don't have the numbers here, but it would not be much of a difference if all shipping from the Middle East to Japan had to be rerouted around Australia might have an impact, but not necessarily strengthen the, uh, the, the Japanese economy. So, and in this context, I think we, we should better look at, at the bigger picture. And what we're essentially seeing is this rise of threat perceptions or, or ideas about how the situation is developing. Um, there's a number of concepts. You know, in, in 1994, when the Soviet Union started, stopped to be a threat to Japan, you had this report on, on how Japan should reorient itself in a post-Cold War order. And in that report, the Higuchi report, uh, it said, you know, sea lanes are a matter of life and death for Japan. China followed 10 years later, right? When Higuchi Tao said, China has a Malacca dilemma. It's China's dilemma. Then in 2006, you had uh, Azul Tao, then he was a foreign minister. He's been holding all the a number of cabinet posts, I don't have the overview actually, now he's a minister of finance, he used to be prime minister as well. Uh, he came up with this concept of an arc of freedom and prosperity that obviously excludes China. He was ambiguous about South Korea, but what it did was it placed Japan solidly in, in, the, in the Western Hemisphere, the Western world, just as that been during the Cold War. And obviously then for that purpose, that makes the, the US-Japan alliance very important. Then uh, that be, he came up with the Indo-Pacific, a concept that has since then become very popular uh, in Australia too, in the US as well, that most recently it's the Indo-Asia-Pacific uh, in the uh, Defense uh, Ministry publications. Uh, plus the pivot and then its kind of military outgrowth, this uh, area and excess denial strategy that's been attributed to China it's more attributed to China than it actually is, according to research of some US-China specialists. And the countermeasure, which is an ARC, the ARC battle concept, one of the main things for the Pacific Command to, to implement. And on the other side, you have this, the Chinese kind of revival of geopolitics based on this Malacca dilemma, the view that China depends on sea lanes and the Chinese prosperity 
really depends on how much it can protect this sphere or its seed, it, access to the seas uh, and to overseas markets, to resources, in view of the, of the American pivot and, and pressure on this island chain. But somehow, uh, well, in that context, you wonder, why, so why, uh, why is China going to reclaim land in the South China Sea? Because by doing that, it provides the best reason for the U.S. to establish its, re-establish its presence in the area. The Philippines has re-invited the U.S. Even Vietnam is forging closer relations with the U.S. So if it's really in the strategic interest of Chinese leaders to keep U.S. troops at bay, they're exactly doing that. They're doing the opposite of what they should be doing. If, we, if you read these two statements, though, I think it provides some sort of uh, explanation that, you know, some tension is actually good for China. Uh, because um, for us, some threat or some uh, foreign pressure really generates um, momentum to develop economically as well as militarily. And after all, we need to do some, we need to assert our stance, otherwise we are not being taken seriously and we are being bullied around. Now that's just two statements and a, kind of a very general point, but I can if you want to elaborate that more on, in terms of a, a social, sociological concepts and how that works uh, in terms of propping up the state and motivate people to work hard under uh, a certain government to, to make the nation prosperous. So we have this confluence between geopolitical ideas and national prosperity that have uh, more, most recently then also led to this Chinese geopolitical idea of the, the one belt, one road, the new Silk Road through Central Asia, plus then the Maritime Silk Road uh, through South, uh, through the Indian, uh, Southeast Asia and the Indian Ocean. Something that is supposed to alleviate economic problems within China, to export labor, to uh, open new export markets, and to have its stained old enterprises, construction industry, continue to work and, and generate employment. So far. That's my uh, explanation. I think I've been running out of time. I'm sure there remain some open questions on, on my take on this land reclamation as, as a matter of more geopolitics of images, how we try to understand the world rather than military imperatives uh, themselves or uh, imperatives of securing uh, certain oil and, and, and gas deposits in the South China Sea. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris, for that, that uh, overview and talk about geopolitics there. I'd like to take a different, uh, a, a different viewpoint, I suppose, and, and like to talk about strategy. Now, if we just, I'll first talk about a few aspects of strategy which are interesting as relates to this. I'll then talk about the Chinese strategy and the reaction of others, and then lastly talk about um, applying some of those aspects we talked about first into perhaps revising the uh, current strategies about dealing with the, South, with, the, with the South China Sea issue. First up, strategy. Now bear in mind what we're talking about, I suppose, is in international relations thinking terms, is agency versus structure. So it's agency constrained by your structure, but, but, but both constrained by it and trying to, uh, to um, impact it. Chris spoke there, I suppose, about how policymakers, if you like, look, look out of the context of the, of the, of the international um, environment out there and derive their strategies from that. But there's another way of looking at it, and that's, and that's to focus upon the, the agency side about it. 
bear in mind, strategy is just an idea. It's, it, it is an idea about how we will use the means we have to achieve particular ends. But importantly, it is also uh, a game that is, that, that, is a so, that is a social interactive game, if you like. It is played between uh, a bunch of intelligent, adaptive players who will change what they're doing based upon what, what the other players are, are, are doing. It is very much flexible. It's not, it's, it is not a fixed plan. Of course, Thomas Schelling, with the, the uh, game theorist, famously said that uh, talking about strategy as, as a game of, of, of interdependency, so that, uh, what, so that what, what uh, one side did affected what the other side did, spoke about as being an essentially, bar, uh, essentially a bargaining situation, which the ability of one participant to gain his ends is dependent on the choices or decisions the other participant will make. So bear in mind that when you see all these various nations up there um, disputing who owns the various islands and the, uh, and, the, uh, South, and the South China Sea and the various strategies they are, they are applying, each of them, of course, is changing their strategy and evolving it based upon what everybody else is doing. So this is very much a game in flux, if you like. So if we, if we now sort of move ahead more to the meat of the subject, I suppose, we talk about uh, China and the kind of strategy China has been has been using. Um, if you if you think back to to uh, Sun 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 uh, Sun Nazu's famous work, I suppose about the uh, uh, the art of war, he said that the best way to uh, to win is to attack the other's strategy first. So wait to wait until the others have a strategy and then and then and then counter that. What's the strategy that all the the non-Chinese players are are using? Generally speaking, if we take the US as, as the biggest example, I suppose, because it tends to set the tone for the rest of the players, um, the Americans, since the, uh, since the early 1990s, have been playing a hedging game. If you like borrowing ideas out of uh, macroeconomics e and, and, the, and the finance world, I'm not too sure that necessarily flows well from, those economic, from the finance world into international relations, but of course Stephen Walt famously famously did it with his uh, neo-realism, so why not, I suppose? Now, hedging involves two different ideas. Firstly, engagement, so drawing upon liberal thinking. That is tr trying to work with China on a, co a cooperative basis with a focus on, on, uh, on economics often, but working for the common good. Uh, not, not sort of choosing to, to get relative gains, but trying to choose absolute gains, if you like, so that both, so that that, uh, that uh, both sides gain. We'll try and use international law and try and use those international institutions with a focus on, on multilateralism. So the aim is, if you like, those win-win situations. So engagement means working with China for the uh, common good, if you wish. That's one part of the hedging argument. But no one knows what the future will be. So assuming that China will, will, will arise and all will be, will, be, will, be, will be peaceful is not certain, because the future is uncertain. So the, so the argument goes, in that case, while we're engaging China, let's also balance against China and take a, a realist view. Let's worry about relative power rather than about absolute power. So let's, let's, let's think about maintaining or building up our, our military force, focus on alliances, uh, basing, being prepared for, a, uh, for a, uh, a conflict. Hence the hedging strategy, if you like, tries to have it both ways. 
both engaging and balancing against. John Garner, who, who the, from, the, uh, from the Sydney Morning Herald, has, had a great line last year talking about the, G, the G20 conference. He said, Prime Minister Tony Abbott earned himself an honesty prize after the G20, the G20 summit in November when Germany's Angela Merkel asked what drove his China policies. Fear and greed, Abbott said. So nice, that's really nice summing up of, of, the, of the hedging strategy. You've got, if you like, the greed of being part of the Chinese economic dream. And Australia is perhaps... Yeah, that's, that's certainly appealing. But you've also got that fear. What happens... If, if a nation of 1.3 billion cuts up, uh, cuts up rough, should we, be, should we be prepared for this? So China, thinking about the South China Sea, um, can obviously steer a nice path, if you like, can sail between engagement on one side and hedging on the other. With the, looking at the engagement side, it simply counters that. It, it can counter the, the, engage, the engagement side by, by, by the argument that there is no argument. China owns the islands. Um, there's no need to cooperate with anybody because, uh, to be honest, this is just a truism. There is no dispute because China owns the islands. End that. ASEAN wants a code of conduct, and various other speakers have for a long, well, the last, last 10 or 15 years, I suppose, spoken about uh, institutionalising this particular problem and having, a multi, having multilateral agreements. But China is not interested in multilateral agreements in this, in this issue, preferring uh, bilateral arrangements, where its great economic power and its great power overall can obviously overawe the other nations of the, uh, south, of the uh, south China Sea. Bear in mind, for instance, Brunei has a population um, about a third the size of Brisbane. So, you know, um, China can, reason, can reasonably overawe Brunei, who's actually cut, cut a pretty good deal with China, but that's, but that's, a, but, but that's another story. Um, China's course at the moment offering ASEAN that the next decade could be the diamond decade. Hmm, that's appealing. All they, all they need to do is just um, approve of Chinese actions and, um, and uh, move on. So, with its, by, so China can avoid the engagement part of it completely by arguing that there is no problem and by, and by, and by holding out that, uh, that uh, carrot out there, if you like. On the other hand, you will, you will recall that, that the, uh, that the uh, strategies also, also take this realist line and they talk about balancing. Now, China's countered that rather, rather nicely by using what some people call salami tactics, but basically you're talking about something that no-one wants to go into a major war over. These, are, these, were, well, these were just rocks in the sea, literally a rock in the sea, and sometimes less than a rock in the sea because at to high tide they were, they were recovered. So when it started off, no one was too concerned about dying over, over um, a rock that was covered by the tide. The rocks, of course, are getting bigger and bigger now. But China has been able to use... Um, coast, it's, it's a coast guard rather than its navy, so it's a, you know, it, it's a, peace, it's a, a, a constabulary force rather than a military force, able to use fishing vessels, um, doesn't use armed force, of course, uses fire hoses when it wants to scare off somebody, um, or occasionally rams them, so the Vietnamese say, having lost a fishing boat recently. Uh, they can use oil rigs, reclaim the land. These are all peaceful activities. There's nothing military here. There's nothing here. Move on. One of those arguments. Um, so ASEAN and Australia and the US and everybody else doesn't want to start a major war over this. So we 
So all those countries, if you like, de deter themselves. So you can see the Chinese strategy has been quite good. Um, it's sailed nicely between engagement and, and uh, balancing. It's been able to play off both sides and succeed. Well done, chaps. The hedging strategy, of course, in itself is, uh, taking take an, an international relations viewpoint, of course, is incoherent and, in, and, inconsi and inconsistent. If you look at international relations theory, of course, the crowd favour at the moment is analytical eclectism that tries to merge incompatible viewpoints, such as liberalism and realism. And this is a good example, perhaps, of an incompatible viewpoint, where you're trying to merge two things that, are, that, that take different, 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 different views of the world. In that regard, of course, we think of economics and politics, i.e. the security study stuff, we think of those two things as being separate. But if you're a Marxist, economics and politics are not separate at all. They're very much joined, very much a single, i.e. a single item. That's spoken about all the problems about, about hedging. What about the problems for, for China? Um, it's been remarkably successful and built some huge islands. I think actually that one was a while ago. I think all this is now land as well. So it's impressive. Um, thousands, of, thousands of acres have been reclaimed. Has this been, has this been worth it? The Chinese general said, of course, that, that, the, that, uh, that by building these islands, China has gained respect, and, and we'll get back to that later. Some of the disadvantages of uh, doing it this. Um, obviously, there's, there's some pushback from everybody else who is not Chinese. Um, and once you get a pushback, then, you're, then, then there's this worry about fueling and, and, uh, and arms race. If China will do this, maybe they might cut up rough later. Therefore, we need to think about, about rearming. Is that good from China's viewpoint? Well, you wouldn't think China, as a, as a developing nation, would actually want an arms race per se, although they seem to be keen on it at the present, at the present time. China wants to be a moderately prosperous nation by, 20, by 2021. You could make an argument that they probably could have achieved that 10 years earlier if they weren't spending so much on their, on their military might. But the trouble is things like this tends to, tends to, tends to get into the few Thucydides trap of the uh, security di di dilemma, and so people ratchet up that, that, that arms race. Secondly, there's always a chance of, uh, of miscalculation by those involved. The classic example, I suppose, was back in uh, 2001 when the, when the Chinese fighter jet inter intercepting an American um, aircraft off Hanan Island uh, uh, collided with the, with, with the American aircraft. That kind of accident can lead to something a, a lot more serious happening. For instance, the Americans were flying a maritime surveillance aircraft over these islands and got warned off by, by the Chinese on the radio. Let's say that the, that the American aeroplane, for some reason, had a mechanical problem and crashed. What would the Americans think? Did it crash, or was it, or was it shot down by those nasty Chinese? So there's always a danger of, mis, of miscalculation. In that regard, I was pleased to see that the Global Times in, in, in China there warned Australia about flying aircraft near them because they'll shoot them down. That kind of talk can help sort of fuel miscalculations. Number three... Um, the trouble about this kind of thing is you lose your soft power a bit. Um, that image of, of a great nation bullying small nations mm, doesn't, sell that, doesn't, doesn't sort of sell that well. Uh, so you're tilting the playing ground of international relations towards 
the non-Chinese part. Fourthly, you also bring in others who, who are worried about international law, e.g. Europe is the classic example. Europe probably doesn't care about these islands, to be frank. I mean, they're a long way away from anywhere. Um, well, at least, at least they're a long, a long way away from Berlin anyway. Um, but, but when you think about Europe and, and the Russians having taken a land grab of the Crimea and that business about uh, do you want to live in a world where uh, territorial borders are not sacrosanct anymore, that, we, that the UN Charter has changed and the, and the great powers grab, grab new land, then suddenly grabbing new land in the South China Sea looks like that international law issue. So you can, you can bring, in, bring in sort of other people. And lastly, of course, freedom of the seas. China is a great trading nation. Here you are doing something that could interrupt the freedom of the seas. Isn't that, uh, isn't that a contradictory act that you, you're trying to constrain freedom of the seas at the same time when you actually need it? Especially as Americans are big in freedom of the seas for, for, uh, for historical reasons that to go back to uh, 1776. Lastly, um, for all those international relations students out there, of course, there's a good book on this. There's a, there's a, no, not, there is not a good book on this. There's a good book that needs to be written. Um, Hirschman, of course, wrote a book called National Power and the Structure of, For the Structure of Foreign Trade, which is about German strategy into war, about people using economics to influence other countries. It's, it's an area that hasn't been explored much, but the point is he saw the use of, of economic power being used to influence other nations, not coerce them and influence their domestic politics in the sense of building up a domestic interest group that would, then inf that, would, that would then influence the national interest of that particular country. So we're now talking about the Chinese moving away from influence to almost coercing. So there's two issues in, sort of in here. One is that to keep them on side, you need to keep paying them off. The great power needs, needs to keep that economic carrot out there. That means that China can't stop this now. So the one belt... One road policy is nice because that's a big economic carrot that will keep people attracted to that versus worrying about this. But the minute that you stop that economic carrot, it almost looks like sanctions then. So it's one of those things that's easy to start, hard to stop. Of course, the second is, as I said before, was China's exploiting that shadow of the future, that things will get better as long as you go along with it. But, you, but it may not be able to go very much further. We may be, may be, may be, may be reaching the, uh, the limits whereby you can influence people but you can't coerce them. I said, good study there to be done by someone. In, in, my, in, in, my, in my, my remaining um, seven minutes, yes? Excellent. Five. Five or seven? Five. Oh! <laughs> hard man, hard man. Let's talk about some strategy now. We spoke about all those various issues and a gad bag of of different ideas out there, I suppose. Let's talk about the last thing, about strategy itself. Um, strategy is a hard thing in that, in that the most important thing that you need, need to actually devise a strategy is what you are trying to accomplish. What is, what is your end? And in particular, in this case here, you're trying to talk about what kind of a relationship do you want with China? Because this is very much a relationship issue. China obviously uh, wants respect, wants, wants, to, wants to be a certain part of the of, um, respectfully for the hierarchy of power in this, in this, in this particular region. So let's talk about co what kind of a, an end that we'd like, what kind of a relationship we would like with, uh, with, with uh, China. There's a, bunch of, uh, there's, there's a bunch of different options out there. In fact, Aaron Friedberg in, the, in, in Later Survival is sixth, sixth that, 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 uh, that, that he can see American thinking about. Firstly, of course, was that, was that particular hedging one. But one of them was, of course, balancing. We could have a relationship where we restart the Cold War, if you like, and, and have a containment strategy. John Mersheim is big on uh, 
big on on uh, that one. Although even he's come around to the idea that it might be a bit too late. China is too big a player in in the uh, global e, e, e economy. We can't turn back the clock now. Um, and obviously, from an Australian point of view, uh, the thought about having a, a, um, a containment strategy against China is just appalling. Um, because one of the one of the tenets of, of such a balancing approach would be that you don't trade with the enemy. Now that has a big big a big impact upon the global e e, e economy and the uh, and and, and uh, global finance. So balancing is theoretically possible, and there's no doubt that it could be done. And if the South China Sea turned up really really rough and then and then and ended up in a war, we'd get there anyway. But it wouldn't be good for anybody, not for China and not for the rest of us either. So not overly, not overly appealing, that one. Accordingly, every, everybody then rushes towards what's called a uh, rules-based order. And you find a lot of, especially in the last decade or so, a lot of people saying what we need to be working towards is a rules-based order. If we have a rules-based order, it says that land grabs are out because we're talking about the United Nations rules, if you like, those multilateral rules about territorial claims. You shouldn't take land off, off other people. Look at this. You're taking land away from the Philippines. What has the Philippines ever done to, uh, to uh, hurt you? The trouble about a rules-based order is we, if, if we take a bit of a Western construct, and we'll get to the Chinese construct in a second, but if we, if we take a bit of a Western construct, you're talking about uh, the state, and, and in particular the elites of the state, so the, uh, uh, the, the, the political elites and the bureaucratic elites all talking to each other. So rules-based order is very much a state-centric approach to life. You've got the pinnacles of, of a society all talking to each other and ignoring the rest of so, uh, so, so society. That seems to play to the Chinese Communist Party strengths because you're ignoring society and focusing upon the party, if you like. doesn't necessarily play to our strengths, who have a very different view of reality. There's also a view, of course, who makes the rules. The Chinese would reasonably argue that, hold it, these rules were made by the Americans for the benefits of the Americans, therefore we should remake the rules. And there's, and there's a reasonable argument that way. Um, so the cosy sort of state-only sort of state rules-based order sounds good, but it, but it also ignores the fact that our relationship with the China is a lot deeper than just elites talking to, to uh, elites. We've moved on from a business-class world, if you like, to use the Shell um, petrol companies analogy back in, uh, in uh, 2005. We now have a lot of diverse linkages between our society and, and uh, Chinese, whether in business or finance, education, culture, even, even uh, property ownership, if you like. Our linkages are deep, and there's a lot of them, you know, very, very diverse. Which brings us on to another alternative, of course, which is complex interdependence. <coughs> now, interdependence gets a bad rap as an idea, I just, I just get a bad rap, but people always focus on the economic parts of it. The inter, interdependence means that there won't be any war because economically we're trading with, trading with each other. Bear in mind, Robert Cohen and, and uh, Joe Nye, when they, when, they, when they termed the phrase complex interdependence, and interdependence, thought that it could be used for both, if you like, good purposes and for more sinister ones. It was not necessarily a relationship that necessarily meant that, that, think, that uh, you would avoid conflict although you might avoid military action. There are there three parts. S uh, societies are collected down, down multiple channels. There's no hierarchy of issues. That is, military power isn't, doesn't, doesn't uh, dominate. It could be a whole range of issues. Um, and there's a minor role for military force. But the asymmetrical power 
in that complex interdependence, the asymmetrical power in those linkages between a country like China and, and say, a country like Brunei, means that China can use its asymmetric power to achieve the particular outcomes it, uh, it uh, wishes to. It can influence the other country uh, by, if you like, attraction rather than, rather than necessarily using force. Complex interdependence is only applicable in certain, in certain situations, but is, the kind, but is more towards the kind of relationship that perhaps that we have with, with uh, China now than the rules-based order, which is a rather stylized approach. That might sound fine, but however, if we, if we actually get back to especially that slide by the, uh, by the um, PLA General, this entire issue, as I said, is not, ne is not necessarily about things like, like sort of gold rushes, but more about um, identity and respect. So if we start talking about relationships now based on identity and respect, um, you'll recall back in the 1990s and the early 2000s, a great pile of academic articles praising China for the way with which it, it, uh, it fixed up its, uh, its uh, land borders. Because bear in mind, China is, has the largest number of land borders of any country in the world. That's quite a problem. Generally speaking, they fixed up most of them. There are a few, dis few disappointments in uh, India and places like that. But nonetheless, they've been in, in the 1990s. They were they were very, they were very effective about tamping those down. Bear in mind, there was almost a, you know a major perhaps nuclear war in the late 60s because of the Russian Chinese uh, border border issues. Trouble is, the world's changed, um, as uh, has been brought out many times since T since T Anaman Square. There's been a, a push towards, if you like, uh, what people call Chinese nationalism, but it's not quite it's, it is not quite the right term, but um, it, it's a nice freehand term, I suppose. Um, and there's now a much more definite Chinese I, I, I identity, and it's been shaped in a particular in a particular way. So you have an imaginary world that that uh, that people in China or um, what's Benedict Anderson? Is yeah. that right? Yes. Yes. Imagine co 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 immunities, um, and the Chinese imaginary world, if you like, is different to our imaginary world, which makes sense. But the island issue might be an issue of identity. It might be an issue of we want respect. And you're not necessarily going to address and solve that particular issue by focusing on geopolitics, if you like, or by uh, complex interdependence. Maybe you need to influence, change, mould the identity or the norms so that we can avoid serious problems here. Because we'd obviously, at the end of the day, all of us would like to avoid this escalating in, into something far, far worse. That's it? Yeah. Ex you, Excellent. Thank you. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.